This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 71 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to Jordan Rosenfeld all about scenes, how to make scenes, what they are, and uh, yeah, how to work better with them. But first to last week's question, which was, describe your author voice in three words. Scott Kavanagh said, Scottish smart ass," which I <laughs> did have a chuckle too. Linda said, my author voice in three words, clueless squirrel on crack, which I also thought was hilarious. Uh, Jackson said, conversational Victorian surfer. Uh, Amy said, illustrative, thoughtful, introspective. Victoria said, supportive, nature-loving, quiet humour. Ella said, uh, warm, textural, and ivy-like. Very interesting description. I love these descriptions. They are all so different from each other, and isn't that wonderful? I love that we have such diverse voices in uh, the the Facebook group, so thank you everybody for commenting. Oh, hang on a second. I found two more. So uh, Kari says, full of flavour. Ha. And CJ said, visceral, lush and empathetic. So thank you, everybody, for that. Okay, so this week, the question is, recommend a writing craft, business book or marketing book for listeners. So I I want your recommendations. I want to see what you guys... um, have loved reading over the last year. Uh, yeah, let's 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 fill up our TBRs as if they're not full enough already. Uh, uh, okay, so the book recommendation of the week this week is Writing Your Stories Theme: The Writer's Guide to Plotting Stories That Matter by K. M. Wayland. So um, I read this book last week and I thought it was fantastic. I thought the front end was actually stronger than the back end of the book, um, but that's not to detract at all from the book. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was an amazing um, uh, dive into what theme is. It really demystifies theme. Um, Yeah, and I know I came away feeling very inspired by it. So yes, that was excellent. So in personal updates then, I am going to be doing a live Facebook Q&A with Mark Lefebvre, who has been a guest a couple of times, I think. Or is it one time? I don't know. I know I've also been on his podcast. So a uh, very good friend of mine, uh, Mark Lefebvre on Wide Marketing. So if your books are wide or you would like to take your books wide or you're just interested in learning more about being wide, this is the session for you you. Mark is going to be releasing a book called Wide for the Win, which I believe was co-written by Erin Wright, who is the founder of the Wide for the Win Facebook group. And I think the book is going live on the 16th of March. So we're going to be doing our Q&A session on the 17th of March, which will be at 8pm UK time. 1pm, like Los Angeles time, I can't remember what that is, Pacific time, 4pm Eastern Standard Time, and then 7am 
in Sydney. I think that's AEST, but I don't know what that stands for. Um, so hopefully some of you will be able to make that. And I will leave a link in the show notes to both my Facebook group and to the event specifically so that you get a reminder. Now, um, if you aren't on Facebook or you can't make it, don't worry. I am going to be recording the session and um, I will either put it up as a YouTube video or I will try and play with the audio to see if I can make it uh, work as an extra additional uh, podcast episode. So um, yes, don't, don't panic if you can't make that. Uh, so the next Poison and Prose, which is Patreon only, uh, the writing sprints and question uh, Q&A sessions with me is going to be on the 10th of February. So if you would like to join us, then you can join us uh, via Patreon. So in terms of my week, I've had um, a frustrating week, I would say. I wanted to get a load of stuff done and I just feel like I haven't done anything this week. I feel like I've been doing admin all week and I don't really know why. And that's just the worst because you get to the end of the week and you have nothing to show for what you've done. And I'm in this weird place where I have so many things that are unfinished. Um, I've got uh, side characters which I'm super close to the end of but just not quite there and possibly slightly more than a week's worth of work so I don't know and then I've got um Trey which needs like a, a few more edits before I can send it to the editor I've got Sirens which needs editing um I have got um The Scent of Death which is you know sort of I don't know a few tens of couple of wait, I don't know, it's like, what, maybe 12,000 words in, something like that. Anyway, and then like, even my reading books, like I haven't seemed to be able to get through a book this week. So like, all my books are half finished, like as in the books that I'm reading. And I'm just, I'm desperate, like the achiever inside me is desperate just to fucking finish something already. And um, I have lots of shiny objects and lots of projects that I would love to do. And uh, yeah, I just, I need to finish something to feel a sense of achievement. It's really starting to uh, get to me. And then like my inbox is just unmanageable. It's just completely unmanageable. And uh, I have so, I owe so many people emails. It is obscene. But um, yeah, so I mean, that that was my week. I can't really say that I have done anything because I don't know what I've done this week oh no I do know what I did I restructured side characters which took a whole fucking day to sort out but I got it right and I do always say that the hardest part of non-fiction is getting the structure right but I feel now like I have mastered that and whilst it's going to annoy me that the first two books aren't structured like that um I'm not going to go back and change them because it will mean redoing all the paperback templates and stuff and I just it's just too much I think if I ever do second editions then I will uh restructure them but uh, yeah going forward I think I now have a much more solid process and concept of what I want the structure to look like so that's a real positive to the end of my week um oh yes oh wait I lie I have been doing something this week I have been recording uh the audiobook of villains now I was going to start with the anatomy of prose because that was the most recent book I published in terms of the non-fiction but it's also the largest book and 
there's a theme here, but I would like to just fucking finish something. So um, I I started with Villains because it's one of the smaller ones. And um, and I suppose it was the first one as well. So I, um, yeah. So I am, I will be releasing that audiobook. I'm aiming, from next week, I'm aiming to do um, at least two chapters a week, uh, recording wise, on average anyway. Um, so I hope sort of within a month or so, I should have the audiobook finished. And um, a big thank you to uh, Yanni, who is going to be proofing that for me. And um, yeah, hopefully I will get the first audiobook out before long. So yeah, maybe I did get something done this week. All right, let's move on of the week this week is Helen Scheurer and I hope I pronounced your surname right I know that I asked you how to pronounce it so uh yeah fingers crossed I actually got the phonetic uh spelling correctly you know everybody knows I like to pronounce people's names right um okay so Helen said actually before I tell you what Helen said about her rebellion Helen is actually going to be coming on the show. She is a fantastic uh, author of YA uh, fiction in the fantasy genre. So if you want to check her out, then it is uh, Heart of Mist is the first one in her series. And she's going to be coming on to talk about how to make a six-figure living off of one book a year. So I'm super excited to have her on the show. She is an absolute sweetie. Um, I had a very nice chat with her uh, the other evening. so, yeah. Okay, so Helen's Rebellion then. Uh, Helen says, I did a degree in creative writing, despite the fact that everyone around me told me that it wasn't a real degree and it would never get me a job. My books have earned me more money than a lot of people I know who did these so-called real degrees which I love because I just love anything that is a big fuck you to any expectation that anybody else has of you or, uh, yeah, I don't know, like the system or the people, societal expectations, you know, why is it anyone else's business what we study or, or the careers that we try to make? So yes, I, I love it. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, then please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. So I just wanted to say one more thing about this. Helen randomly reached out to me and we hit it off and it's just so lovely um, that the internet can cultivate these connections and yeah like I don't know if you have got somebody you would like to reach out to but you are too afraid or too nervous or whatever just do it um everybody's inboxes are full so you know you may not get a reply straight away I mean god I know my inbox is so disgusting and I am very slow to respond by email but I do respond and I'm sure that if there are other people that you would like to connect with, this is the time to do it. Like, I have never known a time where society is more starved for connection than it is right now. So whoever it is you would love to connect with, you think, you know, far too far too out of your normal community sphere or whatever, just do it. Just reach out to people and say hi, make that connection. You have no idea how you may be able to collaborate or just support each other. Hey, reach out and just try and support somebody. Um, say, I'm happy to, well, I don't know, whatever. Just 
find an excuse, find a reason and reach out to somebody. I'm going to set that as a challenge this week. And if anybody does it, I want you to tell me and then tell me what the outcome was because I am inspired to do it as well. And yeah, I just, I think it's, I think we all need to be reaching out to other people. Um, yeah, just for the sake of saying hi and making connections. So yes, if you do it this week, let me know and let me know what happens. One new patron this week, welcome and a huge thank you to Martina JG. And of course, a deep felt thank you for, uh, well, to all my existing patrons. You guys are the best. Don't forget, um, there is another Poison and Prose uh, exclusive Patreon one just for you guys on the 10th of February. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus things like Poison and Pros Patreon sessions, then you can do so from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black, and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. All right, let's dive into the interview. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm super excited today because I am joined by Jordan Rosenfeld. Jordan is somebody who has been recommended to me on a number of occasions by a very um, good mutual friend of both of ours, Tango. So big, big props and shout out to Tango. Hopefully you'll get to hear this um, podcast. So yeah, before we dive in, I'm just going to read uh, your bio, if that's if that's all right. So Jordan Rosenfeld is the author of six books on the craft of writing, most recently, How to Write a Page Turner, and three novels, most recently, Woman in Red. Her work has appeared in such publications as The Atlantic, The New York Times, Scientific American, and many more. She is a freelance manuscript editor and teaches online classes. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. No, it's an absolute honor. I hope I said everything and pronounced everything correctly then. Perfect. Okay, good. <laughs> um, okay, so this is um, the, um, what am I, what am I trying to say? So before, like, the, as, <sighs> Sasha, I'm going to edit this out. <laughs> before we get into it, um, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about, like, your journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure. <laughs> I call my journey to this moment my stumble and fumble your way to success <laughs> because I'm a really good um, example of someone who didn't follow a prescribed path, who took whatever you know method or way seemed the most effective to me. And I just kind of always followed leads. So I, I work as a journalist, but I didn't go to journalism school. I have published books, but I didn't um, have a huge platform. Um, so for me, it was really being persistent, always following, I hate to say always following my passion, but, you know, going after what interested me and seeing how I could, you know, achieve my goals. And a lot of that is just hard work, showing up at the desk every day, being persistent and things like that. So I think that's like, have you ever, I haven't, I, I, I'm pretty sure I own a copy. If not, I own it digitally anyway, but Grit by Angela Duckworth. And I sort of read other books that cover like in and around the topic. And I really do think that persistence and that sort of stubborn determinedness is the only way you are going to like have a successful career in this industry because it's fucking hard. Like yeah, it's so it hard is. to, to make a living and to, you know, I think people, quite often underestimate how difficult it can be to 
I don't know, to like grow. And, and it really genuinely is about finding one reader and then finding another reader and then finding two more readers. Like it is <laughs> right. like, like, this is the hard work of it. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I want to say one thing though, because I think persistence does often get linked to things like determination and hard work. And it is those things, but it's also really grounded in being connected to something you love doing so that when you have all the hard shitty days, you have this you like root that you come back to. Oh yeah, I write because it matters to me because it's, you know, I get my voice out there, blah, 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 whatever it is. So it's also about this like deep connection that you have to it, that if you can build that, you'll be more persistent. Yeah. And isn't it funny because for me, like everyone says, oh, you know, you are super persistent and determined and blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't feel like that to me because there is nothing else. So in my head, it is utterly black and white. It is this and there is nothing else. And therefore I will just continue. Yes. (laughs) That works too. I love it. (laughs) Um, Okay. So we are here to talk about um, a couple of things really. Um, And I thought we'd start with scenes. Uh, So, and you've obviously got a book um, or you've got a couple of books because both one's about deep scenes and uh, one is about making a scene. So, um, Shall we start with what actually is a scene? Yeah, there's a lot of different definitions and even I have changed my definitions as I talk about it. But what I think the simplest way to think of a scene is a, is a little kind of contained unit of action and that it, included in action is dialogue and sort of characters moving through space and time and put it plainly like getting shit done. What are they doing on the page? So it's action is the hallmark. Like if you don't have characters doing that movement through space and time and and, and pursuing a goal, then you really don't have a scene. And it generally takes place in a single setting, though occasionally like a character gets into a car or is on a moving vehicle of some kind, in which case then you know they're traveling through multiple locations. So it's that action and character goal with a little bit of setting detail. That's like its essence. There's a lot of other details, but. Yeah, and I think a lot of um, writers can get confused between the difference, uh, get the, di- oh my goodness me. It's like <laughs> 9 p.m. here and I've had a really long day. So like my words are super messed up. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, yeah, so what I was trying to very inelegantly say is that writers can often get confused get the difference between a chapter and a scene confused and a chapter can have multiple scenes um but a scene is one unit it's like the most basic of units I suppose yeah you it's true in fact I was I get asked that question a lot because some people write chapter length scenes they just write a really long scene and a lot of writers tend to break them up into a couple of of scenes within the chapter so that's a good point and really you know scenes have to have a kind of a goal right? So the the character has a goal that for, you know, they may or may not, (laughs) you know, the goal as the writer, hopefully the the protagonist also knows, but most of the time it's like, you're trying to get that character to do something, to learn something, to go somewhere, to discover something. And that's why you're writing that scene. And if you don't have that information, you might not have a fully fleshed out scene. Yeah. And I think the other awesome thing once you've grasped the difference is that you can then use like knowing what a scene is and knowing what a chapter is to play with um pacing and length um and and yeah so that i i quite often will do a chapter length scene but it will still be short and then we'll you know uh, just at those times you can you can play around with um pacing so okay now we know what a scene is what are 
like the most common mistakes or errors that you see uh, writers making when they come to try and create scenes? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that actually the most common mistake I see is writers don't write in scene. They summarize, they get caught in the, the narrator's head, characters thinking too much. But when people are attempting to write a scene, what I find is it's like a, in an imbalance in scene elements. So you might have a, a, a character who does a lot of talking, but then the writer forgets to ground us in the setting. So we don't know where they are in space and time. We can't see their body moving. It's just words, words, words. Um, or you might get a lot of, of description of like the house the character's in and people around them, but we don't actually get to the dialogue to the character doing something. So for me, it's just like learning to balance um, those elements that make up a scene so that the, that the story flows, that it moves and has energy. Um, I also find that a lot of times writers struggle to provide access to characters' emotions so we know what they're feeling and how they're reacting. That's a really common one. So it's like they get great action and we know what the setting looks like, but we have no idea what the character's thinking or feeling. So. Yeah, that um, definitely in my earlier books was something that I uh, used to do. And I work with a fantastic crit critique partner who has, so I'm really good at pacing, um, but my first drafts never have emotion in. They're like literally a piece of cardboard paper um, and she's the other way around. So she does a uh, fantastic emotion in the first scene, but not not so hot on the pacing so we work really well together oh, but um yeah I mean I I still now that's just how I get my first draft out I'm all about like plot pace and yeah. and, and then I layer everything on top but um I don't even know where I was going with that but well yeah. <laughs> let me add something to that which is that I I tell people your first draft and whether that's your first draft of the whole book or of a scene is you telling yourself the story yeah and so a yeah. lot of stuff comes later in revision right we don't always mm -hmm. get it right the first time around well, I am um, a nightmare drafter. So I, I tend to skeleton draft as it is. So uh, because I, I half plot, I half don't. I, I rarely look at any outline that I've written and then I don't write an order either, which is just the most infuriating <laughs> habit and I cannot do anything about it. So I piece it all together and it's in that piecing that the layers start going on, like as I can start to connect things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you write linearly or? Yes and no. Like I, I'll have a certain number of scenes that I know up to. And then part of me will do like you, like, oh, I know what that scene's going to look like. So I'm just going to write that because I know it already. Yeah. And then I'll work my way there. For me, I'm like somewhere between a plotter and a pantser, right? Mm -hmm. So I plot organically, not like on an outline, but just kind of like write notes to myself what's going to happen. And then I kind of have to fill in the gaps as I go. Because it's, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, the other thing um, I have uh, discovered that I do is a lot of um, like mental plotting. I don't know if that makes sense. Like yes. I am like I, I have to think over and over and over and over again about the outline and the plot. And and, um, and then like it gets to a point where it feels like it's tangible enough that I can just start vomiting it down. I don't know how we got onto this. We're supposed to be talking about scenes. This is what happens when two people who are deeply passionate about craft start chatting. Goes where it goes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, all right. So 
one of the the you know one of the most important things as a writer is being able to hook your readers and to keep them reading um and to get them through the the book and then them want to continue to read the sequel or, or whatever um and i always think one of the um most impactful ways you can do that is with your chapter or scene endings so what can writers do to create better scene endings um that leave readers wanting that bit more that's a great question and it's so important because it's true if you get to that end of a chapter or a scene and it's all neatly tied up it's kind of easy to put the book down and stop thinking about it right so, so we have to before yeah. you go on what yeah. does that mean because i think um okay. not everybody will know that they have tied something up neatly so what does that actually mean so this is to answer this question in general, we have to talk about, again, character goals within the scene. So you've, you establish for yourself in this scene, my character needs to do something as another step in this plot journey they're on. And their goal is, you know, say their goal is to, um, they have to find a guy who has a key to a warehouse, okay? That's their goal. Um, they're gonna have three, I'd say two or three options in that scene. Their, scene, their options are achieve their goal. So if they go, they find the guy, they get to key, they open the warehouse, the goal is complete. We are no longer waiting to find out if they're gonna get that piece of information, right? So it sort of comes to an end. And then therefore the tension comes to an end. Um, you can thwart that goal. So they could be uh, mugged on the way to the warehouse. They could be uh, set upon by the antagonist. They could just have a flat tire. Um, they could end up at the wrong warehouse. You know, That thwarts the goal. So that keeps the tension high because there's something about us it's like human nature. We were more attracted or paying more attention when things are unfulfilled, right? It's just like, a, it's like romance plots. Like as soon as the, the two people get together, we're like, Mah, it's boring, I'm over it. But the tension of the, the wanting and the yearning. So if you um, thwart the goal and you end the scene, either as they're being thwarted or you see the thwarting coming or the consequence that develops from being thwarted, you leave the reader wanting more. And of course, sometimes you even... You might have them achieve a goal, but then it creates a complication, mm -hmm. you know, it creates a new goal. So what you want to do is you don't want the reader to feel like that's tied up and complete and there's no more questions about it. And the re and the protagonist is safe and done and he could go back to home and get into bed and all would be well. We need there to feel a little bit of urgency. And so that's something you do by not completing characters' goals or by making their goals more complex and leaving the scene ending in that moment of complexity, if that makes sense. Totally. And like, I always love that when an author can do that to me. And I'm literally like, oh, because of, you know, what I thought, they lead you up to this ending that you are convinced is going to happen. And then they just whip it away. And, you know, there's some like secret reveal or there's some character steps out of the shadows that the protagonist doesn't see. And you're like, oh, um, yeah, oh, I just, I, I love a really good ending. And I'm always like, I'm like highlighting when, you know, sticky tabbying in books when authors have yes. done fantastic chapter endings. Totally. Um, okay, so what is a deep scene and how can writers create them? It's funny. So th this question makes me stumble a little because the, so there's a book that I wrote, I co-wrote with Martha Alderson, who's um, known as the Plot Whisperer. You should have her on your show, by the way. Okay. <laughs> and she's fabulous. She and I wrote a book called Writing Deep Scenes. Now that book was, that title was not our choice. We didn't 
come up with it and we didn't love it and we were unable to <laughs> advocate for a new one. So what the book really is about is sort of the intersection of plot and scene. It's how to figure out what scenes to use at what stage in your plot and what kinds of scenes. But as I thought about your question, what I realized is what I would say a deep scene is, and I think it, it um, might lead into other questions you had had, is one that includes all of the, what, sort of the three essential layers of a good story, which is action, emotion, and theme. So to me, a deep scene is also a scene that has you know, the essential information that you want to reveal to the reader in that scene. So we know what's happening. We know how the character is reacting to it. And we have a sense, maybe um, it'll, the, the thematic part is very subtle and often comes later in revision. So I don't really ask writers to worry too much about that. But um, if you have that action and you have that emotion and you have a sense that the, you know, as a reader, you have a sense that the writer has taken you deeper into this story, um, then I think you, you're doing a good job and you're writing a deep scene. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like that moment when, um, I don't know how you read, but for me, like, it's that moment when you just, like, reality sort of get, you know, like, peripheral vision, like, and, and everything around you other than the story just sort of yes. vaguely disappears. Like, you, for me, I'm like, okay, this is a, I know the writer has really hooked and yes. got me deep into that like story and, and, and uh, moment. So, okay, looking at those different elements then, um, like the action and the emotion and, and theme and all, all of those things, how can, how can writers capture those more effectively? Like what tips or, or tricks would you give um, writers for, for getting those elements better? Yeah. Um, I actually really think that you start with them in order. So I'm like, focus on the action first, get the what is happening down. It's usually the easiest part though there are some writers who'll tell you it's not. Um, they'd rather have their character sit and think about it or feel something. So it's like, get that action down. And then it sounds, it sounds like that's a process that you use. And then yeah. you go back and you go, okay, so he almost got run over by a car and he just found out he's adopted. Okay, how does he feel about these things? And then you don't wanna just tell the reader, he felt sad, he was shocked. You wanna demonstrate that emotion. So you're gonna write your action. Then you're gonna go back through and say, what are the character cues? That's a term I use in one of my books. What are the character cues I can use to demonstrate this emotion that this character is having in response to these events? So I can use his dialogue. I can use his sensory images in terms of how emotion manifests in his body. His heart might be racing, his palms might be sweaty. I can, um, I can use dialogue. I can use uh, interactions between other characters. I can use uh, any number of things to show to the reader how they're feeling. And then again, like I said, the thematic layer, really the thematic layer is like, what is this book about? You know, what are the, the themes that rise? Is it about forgiveness or redemption? You know, how can you plant little seeds along the way? Can you drop little um, images in the background or maybe there's a particular talisman or symbol your character's very attached to or, right? And those things can come later if they don't organically work into your story. So I don't know if that is, um, is answering that question. But. It is. Yeah. Theme has recently become like my favorite play toy. Um, and I used to hate theme <laughs> because I was like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Like, and, and for, for me now it's, 
difficult, but I try to start with my theme. I know not everybody can do that, but um, I am trying where possible to start with theme because it enables me to like set up those details that you were mentioning that little bit better. Like for, for example, in um, uh, the next uh, uh, fiction book I write, um, each character is literally based on like a different angle on the theme. And so like their qu the question and their mini arcs, are, you know, everything is based around that theme, a different representation, a different answer to that theme or that theme question. Um, and I think, yeah, like, and so it, this literally become like my favorite plaything. How many times can I drop in the theme? How many symbol symbols yeah. can I put in, you know? It is fun, um, it is fun. And it's, for me, it also helps you bypass that tendency not you but one toward you know telling as we say like show not tell uh, because it, it's a way to deliver information to the reader on this subtle level where they like almost pick it up subconsciously and instead of being like this is my theme you know overtly stated so I think that's really absolutely cool. it's so much more satisfying I think because it's it's that like you you got it you nailed it there when you said like the subconscious thing and I think when you get to an end of the book an end of when you get to the end of a book and like you it's almost that that massive sigh of like ecstasy and relief and 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 it's and I genuinely feel like those are the books that nailed theme um because yes. everything wraps up in this beautiful kind of I don't know like every it's you then realize in that moment that the flower was the xyz and the the occupation the job was just perfect because blah 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 you know and and yeah like those are the books that nail theme for me you um, know one just quick comment on that what I think course. a lot of readers don't know and maybe even a lot of new writers is that that level of achievement often takes a lot of rewriting like you mm -hmm. assume that the writer just envisioned this story in one full breath and you find out actually, you know, no, it's like I had to write this rough draft and then my friend read it and my editor read it and they gave me feedback and I realized this, there was a hole here. It's like, that's how I write. My stories are just a mess in the first draft, but that's how I write. I can't do it any other way. So, so take heart writers out there. You, you will get there. You just have to be committed to revision you know absolutely absolutely and I know I <laughs> I was just imagining some writer friends faces because they hate editing and like but it is like this is how you do it it's hard you, you have to like find a way to learn to love it I think um you know because you, know, you have to polish the turd at the end of the day yes <laughs> um okay so how can writers create like a better tighter connection between emotion and action in their scenes. Yeah, I think I think I might have almost pre-answered this, but I'll I'll slow it down again and, and see if I can parse it out. So for me, I like to think action reaction, first of all, in the really simplified terms. So character does something, how does what they do or what happens to them affect them? Does it affect them emotionally? Does it affect them physically? Does it make them think something? Does it trigger a memory? Does it conjure a smell, you know? So when you think about, when you look at your scenes and what's happening to your, one thing I see a lot of is, for instance, I've been working with a client who's a wonderful writer and he's writing this story and it's a very masculine male kind of perspective. And the protagonist does struggle with his emotional 
response. Like he can't, he as the writer is struggling to put it on the page, but it's not, it's like, you can tell it's under there. He, he just needs to add a few things like, okay, so he's just, um, you know, he's a soldier. He's just been forced to kill somebody, but then he just walks away. Okay. I get that he's a soldier and he's trained to do that, but is there some part of him that, because we know this character is sensitive that like feels a little sick inside or, you know, things like that. So stop and look at the action in your stories and then ask yourself, would my character just feel nothing? <laughs> would they think something? Would they say something Would you know, what would his, I'm really big on like, what do their bodies feel like? Because mm-hmm. for most of us, we don't stop and think why I am feeling bereft at this moment. You know, we're like, Oh, I have a weird gut spasm. You know, like we, we go into our bodies and we feel, you know, our throats get choked and our, our chests feel heavy and our palms sweat and things like that. And that's more the universal language of emotion, I think, than anything. And you can communicate a lot to the reader by kind of being in the landscape of the body. Um, but you can do it in all these other ways too. Um, I, I have a book called Writing the Intimate Character. I've read it. In, oh, thank you. <laughs> and in that, there's a lot about what I call character cues and how to use them and find them and look for them. And they are um, really quite simple at the end of the day. But mm. there are a lot of these things we've talked about. Uh, I love that you use that example. I was literally writing about um, like a character who struggles to feel emotion today in one of my nonfiction books. And um, like one of the, because there, you know, if you have like a character who is an, a trained assassin, um, there probably isn't going to be an emotional reaction, but there are consequences to killing people. And so you can have a consequence or a psychological, you know, consequence rather than an an emotional reaction. And so it's like looking at that, you cannot have action, like you said, without either some kind of reaction or consequence. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's okay to have characters who don't feel everything in every single scene, but you can't have nothing as afterwards. I think your point is that you have to show the reader then what the character does to not feel. Yes, exactly. What is their training then? You, You just have to help the reader understand how the character has adapted to this state of not feeling right you know they probably have a ritual or a process or a um they go into their training mode in their mind you know exactly so, exactly that's a great I love you that. know even James Bond is basically a rampant like womanizing alcoholic you know <laughs> so he might be able to murder people with a blink of his eye but he's still got his problems you know that's right he's got his vices to deal with it that's exactly and that's true too is you could show Um, how people react to things by what they, how they, so let's say you have an action and then instead of an emotion, you have a subsequent action. That's why I say reaction. So you have an action and a reaction. So then what do they do? That also shows us if they go straight home and have a heavy drink, we know something's going on, right? Exactly. Exactly. And and you can leave it up to the reader to interpret the emotion. You don't have to state it heavily. Yeah. And and if anything, that's better anyway. Yes. Um, Okay, so how can writers use side characters to create um, like more impactful scenes? That's a good question. I tend to think of side characters as kind of um, foils and catalysts for your protagonist. So they're, they're kind of there to bring out or reveal aspects of your character that they might, that you would otherwise have a hard time showing, you know, like it can be as simple as you want to demonstrate that your character is, um, has having a reaction after something happened. 
they're in a bad mood, but you don't want to say like he was in a bad mood, but they go and pick a fight with someone at this liquor store or they, um, they snap at their neighbor and you're like, oh, wow, he's really in a bad mood. Um, obviously they can act as allies and support figures. You know, you always, I, I have this problem when I write um, fictional characters, I forget to give them friends, like close friends. So it's like, they're, they're always this island, you know, and it's just because my mind is like, oh yeah, one more character I have to write. So, but you don't have to develop all your side characters as deeply as your protagonist. You do just, you do need to make them feel real, but I think of them as tools to help facilitate whatever it is you're trying to do with your character. So they can support them. They can, I, there's always, um, I love the character who's like the voice of reason who often goes against, like maybe it's a friend, but they're always like, look, you need to hear this, or you're not looking at this, like that sort of a character. Um, they can really kind of bring out aspects of your protagonist. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I They are definitely tools. I think there's like a gradient as well of, of side characters. There's like the inner yes. circle who are, you know, they're all gonna probably have mini arcs or if then if they don't have an arc, they are sort of influencing the protagonist's arc or whatever. And then you've got like, minor ones who are who are like the the neighbor who you see a few times in the book and then you've got your cameos that like can be yes you know, one-off whatever's but anyway I like that um can you explain the main types of point of view and how writers can figure out the best point of view for their story I fucked this up royally with my first ever book and I had to completely switch um point of view and hey I'm just going to selfishly talk about my book right now because oh, I, I am going through uh, drama um so I'm <laughs> writing uh, a book and it has two voices and there is fuck all I can do about it and it's driving me insane um because I wanted it just to be from one character's point of view and um just can't be and so now I have one first person present point of view and one third person past tense I think yeah <laughs> and so I'm really trying to work out how I can get them to marry how whether or not to just force it and strip one out to keep it all consistent or yeah so talk mm. to me about mm. points of view yeah it's tough I, I I mean the best time to to get this advice right is before you start I know I've right? been there too I've, such I've, a selfish question <laughs> I have turned no I have also had to manually go through and change a point of view in a 300 page novel I was writing what I will say is when you do that you always gain something in the process but it's, it is painful um so the, the the three main points of view that I at least tend to dabble in. Um, you've got your first person, right? Which is that immediate eye point of view. It's So I talk about point of view in terms of intimacy and the intimacy I'm talking about is between reader and characters. So the access you give your reader. So first person point of view is the, the most intimate unless you wanna talk second person, but I really don't. Um, well, we can. Uh, first person is the most intimate. So we are. there's no barrier between the reader and the protagonist. You are them for all intents and purposes, right? Um, and then if you're, you can also be in a third person point of view, I like to call it third person intimate. Some people call it deep third person or limited third person. But to me, a third person point of view has all the same benefits of first person without the urgency and immediacy. You still know whose head you're inside. 
especially if you're in a deep limited, you know, we know we're in one character's head, we know whose thoughts they are, but just by switching those pronouns, she, from, from I to she, he, or they, they're just, it just gives you a little bit of distance. And the reason I think that's important is if you're writing a topic or a story that's very intense, as a lot of people do, first person, and if you're going to go with present tense, is so immediate and so up in your face that if the topic is also intense, it can be a lot for the reader. So that's why I tend to favor that deep third person. It's just like a weird little thing. And then you've got various forms of omniscient, right? And omniscient points of view are things like where you can, you can have that godlike perspective. So you can tell the reader information the characters don't know. You can zoom in and out of time. You can just sort of offer information that comes from no source. It just kind of, you're the storyteller and, and, or you can move in and out of characters' heads. And while I think, I think there are stories for which omniscient is very effective, but I struggle with it. I struggle most of like, for instance, the writers that come to me for editing, when they try to be doing omniscient, I'm like, you really just need a, a good deep third person. That's really all you need because it leads to sloppy storytelling if you mm. don't know how to wield it well. Um, but that's, but a lot of, there are people who wield it very well and it's great for like epic stories and fantasy and sci-fi and historical fiction. Yeah, I'm groaning because I'm like, the way you <laughs> described it, I'm like, oh God, that's basic. Ba the, the one who, who's currently, and I'm trying really hard not to be too specific because the whole point of this is for there to be a plot twist. So the narrator is not the protagonist and mm. you find out at the end who the narrator is and what I am trying, and the narrator is also a, a character in the story and I am trying to have like a I don't want the character's voice in the story to be too obviously the narrator's voice mm -hmm. if that makes sense um and so this is really my my problem and and my trouble is like how can I how can I still you know it's those that foreshadowing and that symbolism and the how can it be similar enough that when you get to the end it's like oh of course but also not so similar that you can hear the same voice and so yeah it's have you um read nk jemison at all yes i have i have her? read i've read two so i've which got, ones i so i've read um actually i may have read three so i've read uh fifth sea that season okay. and i've read uh whatever the obelisk and i've got stone sky yes. literally here okay. ready to start and then so i read one of her short story ones as well her I think it is the fifth season, how she does that with the three points of view and you don't yes. know, I won't spoil it, but she's kind of tricking you along the way. And um, yet each voice seems like its own different character. Yeah. Um, you might go back and look at how she's done that because I, I thought that was masterful. I really did. It was masterful. Yeah. And um, the, yeah, it was. And <laughs> funnily enough, uh, and we haven't spoken about it, but the point of view that I preferred was the second person point of view it was <laughs> it was unbelievable really good she did it, it was well. fantastic well, I mean honestly it is it's a fabulous point of view when you know how to use it another um there's two other books that I like that are in the second person one is a very old book from the 80s called Bright Lights Big City um whose his last name I can never pronounce it's like Jay McInerney McInerney something like that um it's a great book and you're in his head. But to me, what the second person is most of the time is like a first person turned even more 
like intimate on the self. It's like you talking to yourself. So mm-hmm. the narrator is talking. It's that self-talk voice. You, you, you. Um, sometimes though, it's, it's the protagonist speaking to another character, like, like a letter or, uh, you know, the book that w- was made into that Netflix series that's called you. you. Yes. I don't know if you read the book. I haven't, but it's in my Amazon basket. I'm on a book ban. I've brought too many books oh, recently. And... I feel you so hard. I Look at us with our shelves. It's like, right. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't have any books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, but yeah. Was that uh, the other one you were going to recommend? Yeah. Her, Carolyn Kepnes is the author of that. And the book, which I read long before they made it into a series, is the narrator is this guy who's kind of well, let's just say it. He's stalking this woman and mm. he's talking to her as though he's like narrating his every moment to her. And so that's kind of a different version of second person, but they're both really effective. When so I, I read, um, interestingly, I read two second person books in close succession without realizing that um, I hadn't done it intentionally. So one of them was was the fifth season, N.K. Jemison, which also like I I did obviously say that I really loved the second person point of view, but I didn't at first. It took me some adjustment. And then like the more I got into it, the more I was like, oh my God, I just love this. It is fantastic. Anyway, the second one was The Language of Dying by Sarah Pinborough. Um, Oh, I love her. (laughs) Very short book. Um, I, I wasn't in love with the ending but um I loved everything right up until the ending sort of the last couple of pages um and and it's the characters um it's not um a spoiler for me to say this but the character's father is dying and it's a very short it's like a 24-hour period um the, the final moments and looking back and forth and the father is always called you and we never know the father's name and we never know the protagonist's name mm. and um it is just it was it was a real lesson in how to write mm. um to yeah the, the second person point of view so yeah I definitely recommend it for anybody who wants to study like point of view and your book of course did um did you read her other book well she has many but um but called behind her eyes no I haven't oh, oh. it's oh, funny because really? I it's really good although I had some also had feelings about the ending so maybe she's not that great at endings but um I would love to hear what you thought about that in the okay. many months it'll take you to get through your stack. I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> Let's not talk about my TBR. No, because <laughs> no, um, then I have to talk about mine. I know, right? <laughs> um, so any other tips then um, about using point of view more effectively? I mean, I think it really does come down to first assessing like how much intimacy you want between um you know, the reader and the protagonist. So how close, you know, how intense do you want the experience to be for them? Um, gosh, it's, it's like, I wrote a whole book on point of view and shouldn't I have more <laughs> tips? <laughs> Read the book. No, I think, I really think that you should be open is what you should be. If you think, you, you know, let's say you're always comfortable writing in one point of view, try it, just try a scene, one scene in a new point of view and see if it changes, particularly if you feel like something's missing. For me, I actually prefer third person, but in my novel Forged in Grace, I felt like it was giving me too much distance and I needed to be closer up inside my protagonist's head. So I put, I switched it and then it was like, oh, it came alive, you know? So sometimes you have to kind of trust if it's not feeling right. And I would say, you know, don't be adventurous unless you know that you can handle omniscient. If you know you can handle it, then go for it. And, you know, all power to you. Um, And in terms of tenses, you talked about 
present tense and past tense, Ver we're talking about verb tenses there. Uh, again, present tense just makes everything feel much more in the now and past tense just gives you a beat of distance. So I'm kind of a fan of kind of just feeling it out, you know, getting, um, getting some feedback as well. I don't know how you feel about this, but I really feel like each character has their own preference for like, so I don't mean like each character in a book. I mean, each protagonist will have like their own preference. Yes. So I, I knew as soon as I rewrote um, a scene in my first book that I had done it in the wrong point of view in the wrong tense because it, it just felt correct it felt like their voice um and and that's why I'm so stuck with this bloody book that I'm writing now because I'm like well <laughs> it, and and the other thing is I don't feel like I have the narrator's voice um right yet so I'm actually going to go away and rewrite some of the scenes I'm going to try second person and I'm going to try omniscient and I'm going to try yeah. like a different voice in first person just to rewrite them to see if I can get it right and maybe I'll try different tenses as well because obviously you know you can have third person present you can have third person past and you yeah. can have you know everything in between just to see what works I think you have to experiment honestly some things the only way to know is to try I wish there was a formula but you, know. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to check it out you do and so many but that's the thing like so many writers don't they just assume that they are meant to write in third person past tense because that is yeah so many books are written right in. but you know you don't have to you can well there's one other thing I'll say is that especially if you're looking to publish right now and you know in a contemporary way I would look at the genre you're writing in exactly what what are the you know because sometimes I think a lot of YA young adult tends to be in the first person yeah. it's not to say you can't write in the third person but you know look and see what the demands of your genre are because that that will definitely have an impact on being published but you know if you're just in the drafting stage just play with it you know have fun Absolutely. Okay, so I have a question uh, from one of my patrons from Amy. So Amy says, writers are cautioned to not include information that the reader uh, doesn't need to know all of the time. But is a deep scene uh, often contains very specific details, emotions, etc. Where is the line between a deep scene and non-essential details? It's a good question. And I, I think writers are always wondering, like, how much is too much? How much is not enough? Um, I really just kind of bring it always back down to two essential things. So every scene should do two things. It should drive the story forward, the plot forward, should reveal some piece of new information. And I say the word information very loosely that, you know, there should be something we didn't know before that we know now in the scene. And second, it should deepen our understanding of the character. Mm -hmm. And it could also deepen um, where the character is on their journey, their sort of journey of change and transformation and their, their narrative arc. So it's, to me, it's like all the rest of it is trappings, right? So if you are doing those two things, you, we can see the setting a little, there's definitely action, um, you know, then it's really up to you. Do we need to know how the character feels in the scene? Yes, good, okay, put it in. If we don't, we don't, like you said, sometimes we just need to see the consequence. Um, so for me, I think writers, some writers do err on the side of putting too much into a scene. And for me, that usually comes in the form of summary, not so much scene details. It's like they're busy describing something or they're dropping into backstory. So for me, it's again, you know, does the story, does the scene feel like it keeps moving in time and it has energy and tension? It doesn't get flat, boring. Things don't get tied up too quickly. 
you know, characters aren't sitting there talking about the weather and what they're going to eat for the afternoon. I think you're okay. But, you yeah. know, again, I, I can't tell you how many times I revise a scene <laughs> before <laughs> it feels right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's, I suppose there's a, like I really liked what you were saying about like the character and and some of that I suppose sometimes comes down to character voice as well some characters are a bit wordier and than others and you have to keep that like authenticity um with your character you, I suppose you do. yeah yeah do. okay so this is always my favorite question this is the rebel author podcast can you tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel oh my gosh I, I sort of have this sub layer identity as a good girl so I'm like <laughs> but I, that's not really true either so honestly I think I, I thought of it in a publishing context because um I tend to be someone who's like okay you're telling me that's the rules which I hear as you're telling me what I can't do and I'm like yeah no that's not gonna work for me but I don't do it to be like I don't do it to be rebellious I just do it to, because I don't necessarily think um I don't know maybe I am a rebel so for instance when I <laughs> sold my book make scene which is now god 2005, I think I sold that book. Um, at the time, I did not have a author platform of any significance. I was not a household name. I was a writer. I wrote a few articles for the Mac for Writer's Digest magazine. And the book is published by Writer's Digest um, books. And so really, I was just like, they're telling me I'm too young and too inexperienced to write a book. And I'm just, I refuse to accept that. So I did a lot of research. I put a lot of hard work into it. I found out who the people were to contact you know, I over produced a proposal. Like I did way more work than I needed to do. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to sell this book. And I did. So, I mean, I'm not saying that works every time and I'm not, you know, I realize there are a lot of factors at work, but I do think that um, not saying, not taking no for an answer in terms of just following the, what the prescribed rules are when it comes to writing and publishing is a really good idea. You know, see what, what else is out there for you. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, wh where can listeners find out more about you um, and your books, services, all of that good stuff? I think the best place to start is my website, which is my name, jordanrosenfeld.net. It is in various stages of um, being updated, so it's not 100% accurate, but you can contact me through there. There is information about my books. What isn't up there right now, I do teach online courses. Um, but the specific details about the classes I'm teaching now are is not accurate. So just email me if you're interested in finding out. I teach a nonfiction and a fiction course. They're live with Zoom critique, group critique, um, craft lessons, and they go in sessions of six to 10 weeks. So um, happy to share more. I'm also on Twitter. I don't know. I'm on Twitter, Jordan Rosenfeld, <laughs> at Jordan Rosenfeld. Um, yeah, those are good places to start, I think. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your time. This was wonderful. It was. I love geeking out about craft. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to Tango as well. I will just mention yes. him again. Yes, Tango. <laughs> you know he loves this. Yes. Um, and also, of course, thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And of course, a big thank you to everybody listening. 
I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Jordan Rosenfeld, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I have a great episode on marketing. I am going to be speaking to Nicholas Eric all about how to uh, market and sell and, uh, yeah, basically create literary world domination in 2021. It is dense and packed full of information so you may want a pen and piece of paper for next week's episode. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher and when you have a moment please leave a review.